Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is the next- 
Extreel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. Antoine Fuqua is at the helm of the final in our Seven Samurai Family series with his take on the West in The Magnificent Seven. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you think you're ready to put your hand in the jar, then you're ready to ride right into The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And since Games Master Steven Smart has left the village in the hopes of finding bigger bugs, I, I mean singing cowboys, I mean samurai, to defend our meager podcast, I'll fill you in on who won this week. The movie was Mike Figgis' 1990 film, Internal Affairs, starring Richard Gere, Andy Garcia, and Nancy Travis. It took until Image 5, but Ad Glar said finally figured it out. Congrats, Gustav, you're once again entered to win the 2016 Pony Prize. Yay, Gustav! Hoo-ah! Hoo-ah! And we have a blot spot follow-up, uh, good friend of the show, Mr. Ben Lott, is uh, is writing in about the uh, bug's life. The bug's life. I almost called it the bug's life. <laughs> the bug's life. That's the, that's the prequel. That's right. That the sequel? <laughs> the, it's a sequel. The bug's life. There's only one this time. Uh, I don't have as strong a connection to a bug's life as you guys. For me, it is one of the lower tier Pixar films, and I rarely have any desire to watch it. There are a few fun characters, particularly the circus performers, but I don't really like any of the ants. It's not a bad movie with any glaring flaws, but I also wouldn't say it's a great movie with any outstanding moments. Your rank 149, my rank 162. Those are pretty close together, but I think one of them is filled with malice. <laughs> malice <laughs> he doesn't and... like any of the ants. That's heartbreaking. He He's the guy who's in the garden squishing all of his ants. <laughs> he gets the sequel, The Bug's Life, a finale. <laughs> There's just one. <laughs> Starring Ben Lott and Ant. <laughs> Thank you, Ben, as always. And, Andy, it's a big night. Oh, yes, it is. It's such a big night. Tonight is our Listener's Choice Drawing for 2016, and uh, here we go. Have you prepared the nuclear-powered random number generator based on the half-life of, uh, what is it, cesium-213? chromium-6. Chromium-10. Chromium (laughs) (laughs) How do we do? Yes, I did. Uh, we have everybody's uh, names in the hat who entered on Facebook. And uh, if you'd like to give me a drum roll, I will pull a name from the hat. I consider yourself drum roll given. And the winner of the final listener's choice drawing of 2016 is... Flaming Death! <laughs> Interestingly quite fitting, it is Matt Medrano with The Fly! <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Matt Medrano, a long-time friend of the show. Can't wait to talk to you, man. And that's a great movie, so I'm definitely looking forward to talking about it. A lot of good entries this uh, this time, but uh, that's going to be a fun one to chat about, Matt. So thank you. We'll be in touch so we can uh, get you on the show. Excellent, excellent. And uh, don't forget, uh, we want to know if your screenplay's done. How about that? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Andy, it's time. Let's do trailer. <laughs> So my trailer, Pete, yes, sir, is is Bad Santa Two. Now I really liked Bad Santa. I had a great time watching it. I thought it was just a riot. It was raunchy. It was wrong. Everything about it just made me laugh, laugh, laugh. That being said, I I think it had a good team behind it. And Bad Santa Two, I just don't know. I'm not saying it's a bad team. It's just a different team. 
And I'm wondering if this different team is going to be able to kind of find the magic of Bad Santa. The trailer definitely has a lot of funny moments. It definitely is a very red band trailer. And some of the stuff, you know, I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's going to pull it out the way that I uh, would like it to. I think Terry Zwigoff, when he directed the first one, had a really interesting kind of charm and magic with these really quirky characters that were just vulgar. And it just made for a really fun movie. This one, I kind of, uh, I don't know. I'm interested. And I think the thing that interests me the most is the fact that, you know, for the most part, the cast is back. We got Billy Bob Thornton. We got Tony Cox. They're both back as, uh, you know, Willie and Marcus, the the pair of criminals who are uh, basically Santa and his elf. The thing that I'm excited about is that Kathy Bates signed on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that I took note of, too. She's playing. Uh, she's playing uh, Billy Bob Thornton's mom, and there is just a great camaraderie between the pair of them, and that to me is the is the shining element in the trailer that is making me really want it to be good. So I don't know. What do you think? I didn't see Bad Santa, and I think it was probably a good thing because it's the kind of movie that I would really regret loving. It really is. It shouldn't be. It's actually really good. Well, and and so I I find myself. <laughs> I laughed. I laughed at this trailer. I did, and it made me think I probably shouldn't see this one either because it. Uh, but but I I I don't know if if you recommend it, I I will see it, and uh, and and I'll probably enjoy it. I think Billy Bob Thornton is a very funny guy. It's rare to see him as a character actor, right? I mean, he plays kind of Billy Bob Thornton, and and um, you know probably since Sling Blade. Uh, after that, he's pretty much been the same guy. Uh, right and yep. and and I like that guy, so uh, I I'm fine with that. Tony Cox is a riot, uh, and and y- you know you're right. Mom having mom on board, I think adds another dimension, and she is just as bad clearly as everybody else. So I'm you know I'll check it out. I'll check it out. I will, but I have yeah. to see Bad Santa first. It's you got to see the first season, one first. So. Especially, and you know, I didn't even mention Brett Kelly, who is returning as the kid, uh, grown up Thurman Merman. Um, he was one of the funniest parts of the first one. And uh, the fact that he came back and, and, and I, I don't know, I'm hoping his part is as funny and as good as the first one. I am a little concerned because the trailer, he doesn't look quite as like he's written as well. So I don't know. I'm really curious. I, I'm still going to see it. It might be a rental, but I'm going to check it out because you know, it's good old Kathy Bates. It is going to be a Thanksgiving film here in the States. It looks like it's going to be released uh, November 23rd. So, uh, yeah, just in time for the holiday season. My trailer, Andy, um, I this this one surprised me a little bit. I knew it was coming out. I knew that these people were in a film together. I didn't know the timing would be so perfect for this trailer. And tonight, I am so glad to be talking about Passengers, new film from Morton Tildum, written by John Spates, uh, starring Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. Uh, and Michael Sheen. It's uh, it is a, a film. It looks to be the story of a planet colonizing spaceship that it, where it is full of passengers who are in a space sleep, and two of them are awakened ninety years early. And so, over the course of the trailer, we get what I imagine is the the general arc of the story. They wake up, they get acquainted. They they didn't know each other before. They end up having some sort of a relationship. They are wined and dined by the robot bartender. Looks very much like The Shining. I kind of like that vibe. Uh, and and then the ship starts going crazy, and it becomes kind of a haunted ship for some reason. So I think the the vibe of it is great. I adore both of these people. 
and I to see them in a movie together is really great uh, for me. I think they're great. Morton Tildum, I am also very excited about because I I just watched uh, The Imitation Game again recently when it hit HBO, and that movie is just terrific. And uh, so when I started looking up information about Passengers, I saw that, oh my goodness, he's on to direct Pattern Recognition, which is one of my very favorite William Gibson books. And William Gibson's adaptations have been notoriously bad uh, or failed. And so my hope is that having uh, Morton Tilden, he's kind of on a roll. And uh, and, and I'm hoping for, uh, for a, a great follow-up to Passengers with pattern recognition. So there's a whole lot I'm excited about with this particular trailer. It bodes very well for me. What did you think? I'm very excited too. And you know, John Spates uh, wrote it and he did Prometheus. Uh, granted, we had issues with that film, but I think there were a lot of interesting ideas going on in that film. Um, I know Ridley Scott also kind of uh, meddled with the script quite a bit. So, uh, you know, I'm really curious to see what he does with this. And, uh, you know, he's also uh, involved in Doctor Strange. So a lot of interesting things um, in his work these days. And so I have a feeling that, um, I don't know, I just feel like this is going to be a really interesting sci-fi. And if nothing else, Pete, this is an original story. This is an original sci-fi that yeah. we're getting. And how exciting is that? Oh, it's so exciting. It's, it's in fact, it's damn near a relief. Uh, so I I thought this trailer was an absolute breath of fresh air, and I hope not to be disappointed. I'm looking at you, Mr. Church. <laughs> uh, the release dates here, uh, boy, it looks like a slamming Christmas release starts in the United Arab Emirates on December 21st, rolling all the way around the world to Hungary, January 12th. It's the U.S. on December 21st. Andy? You'll be murdered by the world's greatest lover. Man carries a gun, he tends to use it. Dan, you dead? Pity. I had just ordered a drink from that man. How many you got so far? You and me. (laughs) Who's she? We work for her. Good Lord. That's right. That man murdered my husband. I want something. I take it. He will take everything we have. So you seek revenge? I seek righteousness, but I'll take revenge. The Magnificent Seven, Andy, Antoine Fuqua uh, has taken the directorial helm of this film. And as the Seven, he has recruited Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, Byung-Hun Lee, Manuel Garcia Rolfo, Martin Sensmeyer. Uh, and they are standing up against the evil villain, Peter Sarsgaard. What did you think? After watching all of these, I, I feel like there are so many different ways to tell the story, so many different um, elements that you can have that are so interesting. I think they did some interesting things here, but I don't feel like they ever developed it strongly enough to make it a fully fleshed out story. And while I found it entertaining, in the end, I ended up finding it empty. You know, I can see that. I really can. I think I had a better time at like during the film uh, than you did, and certainly than the the folks in the Slack community did. Um, it, it was not terribly well received. It, it wasn't, I, I should say, poorly received necessarily, but but it was fairly ho hum, and uh, I, I think I just had a better time. One of the things I find interesting about it, though, is I think I grew in appreciation of it. 
watching so much of the interview material with the cast and crew and with Antoine Fuqua and and hearing um, you know what they put into the film that made it better for me and so I'm I am I'm I'm not sure that it wasn't um, you know maybe it just really is not a great film and standing without that kind of interview material it's just it doesn't hold up I don't know uh, but I had a good time with it I like some of the changes they made with it I find that Richard Wank and Nick uh, Pizzolatto's script uh, felt like it was it was uh, uh, the Seven Samurai was Magnificent Seven in a microwave. Like things moved so quickly that that it was really difficult for me to latch on to any one uh, particular element uh, and and kind of fall in love with it. Um, but what was in front of me, I think it it worked well. It was a big action film. It was an action spectacular. There were lots of guns and oh, is there a lot of killing? Uh, and and a couple members of the Seven, uh, I think, were just fantastic and the rest of them were were pretty okay i would definitely agree with that i I really enjoyed some of our seven and it's it's hard in a film where you have seven like a a group of seven to Mm -hmm. really get uh get us attached to all of them i mean even going back to seven samurai i feel like there were some of the seven that i didn't get as connected to as uh you know uh Kikuchio, for example, uh, it's that's just kind of I think some of the nature of when you you know when you have so many characters, it's really just hard. Although I feel like I got a lot more um, out of those seven in something like Seven Samurai. Um, this one, I I feel like they really focused on a few of the characters and they gave us little glimpses of the others, but not much. And it was great seeing that they opted to uh, give us a much more diverse seven. I really liked seeing what they were doing with that, but I felt like they didn't really explore that enough. And in that end, I, I ended up getting a little disappointed with that direction. Well, let's talk specifically about um, about the architecture of the film, specifically around how it, it works as a, a, a model uh, off of the Seven Samurai family. We're talking thematically, we're talking about just how well the film is built in honor of, of from which it stems. Yeah, and I think, it's, uh, I think it's good to note that while this is called The Magnificent Seven, and while certainly it is clear that the screenwriters at least pulled a lot of what they were doing from that, uh, that story that we saw, the, the, the uh, John Sturgis film from 1960. Um, you know, hearing like Denzel Washington say he'd never even had seen that original film and Antoine Fuqua talking about how he kind of saw it more as a, a retelling of uh, Seven Samurai. It's interesting how the different filmmakers involved with coming up with the creative decisions for this story um, were, it seemed like they were kind of pulling from both of those sources to kind of put this one together, which I found uh, kind of interesting. I think, I, I think that was exactly the point I wanted to make too, Andy, that, that it, hearing Fuqua talk about this in particular, the reverence he gives to the Seven Samurai in his sort of analysis of what the film is, is much higher than the reverence he, he gives to Sturgis' film. Uh, I get the feeling he, he likes the Seven Samurai a lot. And that is, in fact, why he turned down the film, I think twice, he said in a, a recent interview, that he said, I'm not interested in, in making this movie based on The Seven Samurai. And the number of times he, he, he references this Magnificent Seven as the remake of The Seven Samurai, just as Sturgis's film was a remake of The Seven Samurai, not as a remake of the Western. It, it brings up so much for me that that puts these two Magnificent Sevens as, as like, the, you know, two movies on uh, at the end of a forked road. 
Um, and, and I think that surprised me. Yeah, it really did. And I think it's interesting, the stuff that they ended up pulling out of it. Um, I'm just, I, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm torn wondering if it might have felt stronger if Fuqua and his writers were all kind of on the same page in the way that they wanted to kind of create a Magnificent Seven adaptation of Seven Samurai. As it stands, I feel like his writers were kind of doing an adaptation of the Magnificent Seven, but mentally he was kind of doing an adaptation of Seven Samurai. And I feel like somehow it it, it didn't converge quite as well. It didn't gel quite as strongly as I would have liked it to. But I still feel like the themes were there, the characters were there. Uh, you know, there's definitely lines pulled directly from the original 1960 film. There's a lot of those same sorts of moments that we've been talking about through this whole series. It's definitely of the same DNA. It's you know, for me, I, I feel like it ended up being the weaker of the ones, though. Yeah, I, I think it was. I, I wonder how how well it stands up over the course of the next three weeks to year. How well it stands up for an audience that has never been introduced to either Seven Samurai or the Sturgis. Uh, Magnificent Seven. Um, this is very much a film that makes good on Western tropes. It makes good on swinging doors and music stops. It makes good on bar women walking upstairs and sh- turning around in shock. It makes good on on these experiences that we've come to understand as tropes of a Western. We haven't had a great Western in a while. Uh, we certainly haven't had a big Western in a while. And to have this film uh, be released and, and largely getting fairly good reviews from people who are not professional critics, I I think speaks well of of how well some of these that that I think Fuqua has has uh, modernized uh, the Magnificent Seven and this this story for today's audience, and I, I don't think we can we can ignore that. No, you're right. I mean, I, I definitely feel like that was uh, some of the intention was updating it and making it uh, feel much more modern for today's audience. To that end, I do feel like um, it's something that might connect. I mean, it, it, it's a fun film, just like the original Magnificent Seven is a fun film. Like, that's the one that's, what, it's the second most uh, shown movie on TV behind The Wizard of Oz because yeah. it's such an easy film to watch. This is likewise a very easy film to watch. It's very easy to be entertained by. And I think a lot of people are going to be entertained by it. Maybe because we have had this whole series behind us and we've seen all the different iterations of the story and different ways to tell it and different ways to bring these themes out. It it kind of colors our view of how we're experiencing this one. But like you just said, these other people who might not have seen those other films, they may they may come into this feeling very fresh and alive with this story as it's being told. That is completely likely. And I don't want to take that away from that. You know, I, I think that's great that people are going to enjoy this and everything. Um, I But I do feel that if those people start to explore, they may find some better ways to tell this story. So uh, do, do we want to talk any more specifically about the script, about um, uh, Wank and Pizzolatto's uh, uh, adaptation? I don't have a whole lot to say. I mean, I, obviously, I think they were really trying to be true to this whole, this whole, uh, the the DNA of the story. Like I said, there were some specific lines um, that came up in the script, which was really nice to see. There were character homages. There were definitely patterns to uh, the story that we've been talking about. We still have kind of 
I guess you could say it's kind of our, our hero introduction that uh, you've talked about in all yeah. of our shows, how we kind of have that s- separate hero introduction. Um, plus, you've got the building of the team, uh, a lot of elements that they played with. And I really enjoyed, I will say, the way that they played around with some of that stuff that we had seen in these other films. But I liked that they did it in a different way. I liked that, for example, uh, you know, it's not just um, uh, building this team of seven, but in the case of Vasquez, he actually is a guy who's wanted by the law, a.k.a. our hero, Sam Chisholm. But Sam actually decides, hey, I'm going to recruit this guy instead because he's such a good shot. That was a really creative decision they made. I really liked that, you know? And and, yeah. and the fact that Goodnight Robichaud and uh, Billy Rocks are basically like partners in, in uh, you know, scamming people. And the whole knife throw thing uh, that uh, we loved so much from The Magnificent Seven, that becomes this basic uh, – it's a scam that these guys have to basically, you know, get money from these people in this uh, as they bet against them. It, it was fun. I mean, I liked that they really chose to play with these characters quite a bit. And they made a really interesting cast of Seven. I think I think they did. I think Nick Pizzolatto is an interesting uh, writer. He comes from the uh, from True, De- True Detective um, uh, most recently, the HBO show. And and his, you know, he's, he's written uh, 16 episodes uh, across 2014 and 15. Uh, he is and, and produced it. Uh, as well. And so here we go, a guy who is adept at, uh, or at least on a team that is quite adept at creating long format procedurals, right? I mean, they know how to draw out the suspense on this show. And I feel like the Magnificent Seven doesn't make use of that skill all that well. When I look at the just the general structure of it, I feel like, you know, it, it felt much more like Richard Wank's Expendables 2 than it did uh, a True Detective to me. It felt like it moved, it accelerated some of the procedural stuff that I have the most fun with in building the team, in in uh, particularly in in making the town ready to be, uh, you know, to be uh, uh, invaded. Fortified, yeah. Yeah, forti- fortifying the town. Uh, it, they they played those elements really short shrift, and I, I found myself missing that. So structurally, I think it was, that affected the pacing for me, and not in a great way. No, I, I definitely agree. And that's, uh, it's a really interesting point, looking at the different experience those two writers have had. And I do agree with you, if Pizzolatto might have had a little more uh, of his kind of background built into this, we could have had a much more interesting film. It did feel a little more Expendables too. Uh, now, let's talk about, I mean, Antoine Fuqua is an, is an adept director. I don't think anybody's going to argue about that, right? Yeah, he's done some great stuff. We've talked about him on the show before on the film board with The Equalizer, which, uh, you know, we had uh, some issues with. But it's, again, I I still found it to be entertaining. You know, it's interesting, though, about these properties, right? I I am a big fan of Antoine Fuqua's work. And I really, you know, I think he's, he knows how to blow things up. He is, uh, but, but also he's clearly an introspective guy. And I think, uh, um, you know, we, we talk about, Training Day a lot, but he's got uh, a number of other films that that have been a lot of fun to watch, and uh, uh, Southpaw uh, being one of them that was just terrific. Uh, so I look at the Equalizer and I look at this film, and I have kind of a similar feeling uh, that that maybe these properties built on other properties are not his um, best opportunity to shine. 
It could be that. I mean, it's it's funny because it's so hard to tell. I mean, I know that Fuqua has been a lover of Western since he was a kid. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you already said, he was very much a, uh, a fan of the original Seven Samurai. So it's interesting. It's like, you know, where is that line? I mean, he clearly has the passion for it and he clearly has the interest in it. So um, why is it when he... Uh, you know, jumps on board to tell this particular story where it just, it kind of stumbles a little bit. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like most of it just comes from the script. I feel like he was doing an adept job with what he had to do. I, I felt like um, the story moved pretty well. I enjoyed the way that the actors performed it. I enjoyed his uh, cutting, you know, putting together these action sequences and everything. I thought Fuqua did a great job. Uh, you know, but again, he is the director, and I think a lot of it does fall on the director, uh, you know, looking at the script and knowing what needs work and what doesn't. And I feel like this script probably did need a little more work. Yeah, I, that's my sense, too. The more we talk about it and the more we sort of look at the the role that the studio had in just wanting to shovel this film through the channel. Like, it just felt like this was something that was already going to get made and he was either going to do it or not. And and I'm glad he did it because I'm, you know, I I really appreciate his vision. We've already mentioned the diversity. I think so much of, of the research that that he and the team did to, to bring a diverse cast uh, is to reflect the diversity of the time, and and so in a big action film to see, uh, to see that kind of uh, care in the you know go into the selection of of performers, I think is is great, uh, and it is a nice upgrade from uh, the original Magnificent Seven. Uh, first shot, last shot. Yeah, this is going to be uh, you know we neither of us have had as much a chance to kind of look at it and study it since uh, we both saw it in theaters. It's a little more kind of uh, what happens very quickly at the moment. Yeah. So. Um, I, my recollection of the first shot is it really was kind of an introduction of the location. And as I recall, it's just kind of we're seeing, we're seeing the environment. It really is just a much of, a very much of an environmental sort of opening, really just kind of setting things up. And that's yeah. my recollection. Does that sound right? Yeah, it, it does. And I, I remember the, uh, we started hearing the explosions uh, very quickly as we're moving through the town and seeing this. And, and it's it's a large cast of, of extras, right? They really, I think they kitted this town well. It was, it looked like a, a real sort of vibrant community Uh, and on the edge of town we have the explosions in the mine and I feel like that was all sort of fed into the the first shot it was it was the establishing shot of the town but I don't remember much more than that it was it was odd though I found because we hear all these explosions going off and the people are reacting as if it's it's almost like in fear like oh something's coming there's bad things are happening but it's like, I feel like this is a regular occurrence here in this town. It's like they're mining in the mountain right next to you. Of course, you're going to be hearing explosions all the time. Why are you like shuffling the kids out? Quick, children, quick. It's like, you know. I yeah, know. there was some sort of an indicator. There was some indicator that I also missed that, it, you know, because the the way it's constructed, this first shot, connects the explosions in the mine with the arrival of the bad guy. And I feel like there's something in there that I missed that triggered the town that the bad guy was coming and that the explosions were not a part of that. Yeah, I, so, I probably missed that too. Uh, and the last shot, uh, we've got four wooden crosses. I think this is right. Four wooden crosses in a shockingly colorized field. Uh, and this pays homage to the uh, to the the four um, grave sites uh, from the Seven Samurai, uh, as we honor our fallen, and then they just slap you in the face with it. 
they slap you so hard in the face with it. Uh, with this, and it, this is the worst part of the film was how it ended. It drove me insane. Not, I, I assume that you're talking not about the last shot, but what comes right after the last shot. It's, it's leading up to the last shot where, where you know, be, because I think what what the other films have done so well is really to pay homage to the fallen, right? And yeah, and yeah. and we really are honoring our honored dead. And this film, uh, the there is no time for honoring the honored dead. We have this weird voiceover. Over, the heroes ride out of town as heroes, as conquering heroes, uh, and we have no sense of who they are and who they have become as a result of their experience here. Then we see these things. It looks like on a cartoon. They have made the sunset a cartoon. And then we close on a cheat with Elmer Bernstein's theme. Yeah. I hated it. I hated it, <laughs> so hated it, I, hated it. I was so mad when that music kicked on. Yeah. I was like, you guys, yeah. <laughs> what were you thinking? But yeah, and you you also highlighted the voiceover, which was terrible. Terrible. What an awful voiceover. It's like, why did somebody, we have to shoehorn somebody saying Magnificent in. Ugh. We've got to say Magnificent. God, We've got to do it. Where can we squeeze it in? Yeah, it was Ugh. insane. And, and I Ugh. cannot believe, I refuse to believe that that wasn't shoehorned as a result of the, the, the studio. That feels like just a studio thing to have done. And so I'm going to, I'm going to let that hang. Either a studio or a bunch of dummies in a, in a, uh, test screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was... Why don't they ever say magnificent? Uh, What's so magnificent about these guys? So uh. stupid. So that was the last <laughs> shot. It was it was an incredibly uh, disappointing way to end a film that I otherwise had a good time um, watching. So um, it, it sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the film for me. So tying these together, I mean, other than the story itself, it, it, it's not a great first shot, last shot, right? It, I mean, it, it doesn't really have a whole lot of the theme. It doesn't really do a whole lot for us. I mean, it just it's it's very plot oriented. Here is the town that's going to be in crisis. Here are our heroes leaving after having yeah. saved it. Because we you know, don't we, connect the heroes to the results. Because yeah. the heroes don't get a chance to 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 honor they don't have that moment saying well you know it's the, the these guys are the ones who really are going to be the ones who make it out of here yeah like that's that's such a great and kind of important moment that we have in both seven samurai and the original magnificent seven that is completely left out here yep. and it's you don't get the chance to really honor these guys which well, is really it's just so disappointing it's really disappointing and i think it it harkens to one of the things that i that that i just felt like throughout the the entire course of the film that it it was a lot of great elements that were put together in a way without a lot of heart and and the final shot is uh i don't know if it's a symptom more than it's a, the illness but it's it's definitely um a demonstrative of the lack of heart yeah sad I let's agree. let's talk about the seven denzel denzel washington as sam chisholm say it <laughs> what do you think how do you do Denzel's always great. I mean, he's Denzel. He he carries himself well. He's a great cowboy. I actually really liked him as a cowboy. I'd love to see him do more westerns, especially because here I felt like of this of the seven uh and you know of the kind of the the key cast of the seven, he ended up feeling a little more restrained and didn't feel yeah. quite as there wasn't quite as much uh you know interest in him as I had in some of the other ones. He had a storyline obviously with you know the connection that he had to uh to bogue but um i just felt like there's something with him that was a little i don't know if it was underwritten or if he just kind of 
decided to play it a little more stoically, but it just kind of came off restrained. I don't know what that was all about. I have two things about it, and one of them actually gets back to a script point that I that frustrated me a little bit. On his this point of Denzel being restrained, I get the feeling they were going for the elder statesman vibe, that he was the experienced lawman, and he brought this group together, and now they were going to have to kind of use their unique skills, and he was going to shepherd them. And as a result, he ended up... I I don't know if he ended up competing for screen with Chris Pratt to me, but it it sure felt uh, kind of confused and not confused in a in a friendly one-upmanship way that we got with Yul Brenner and and um, um, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen, but in a way that was just confused. Like I didn't I didn't know who was in charge. And I you the thing with the Magnificent Seven, the thing with the Seven Samurai, you always know who's in charge. Yeah, and and so Denzel, he, I feel like he almost didn't get enough screen time. His his black uniform didn't look like it fit, uh, and so I kept thinking his pants were going to fall down. Uh, <laughs> so that was a problem that I had. But otherwise, you know, he has the iconic look. I liked him in here. I liked the way um, the way they played with um, with race, with him being in that leadership in that law role, and they they kind of worked it in and and dealt with it and then moved on. It wasn't a big deal. This was the way the West looked. And so they just moved on. Uh, and, and so I really appreciated that. I think, you know, you're right. Denzel is always great. And he had, he had some great lines. I just, I, I feel like I kind of wanted more. Yeah, me too. And it, it's interesting because they, they do tie in this whole, I don't know, the, the backstory with Bogue, I found very interesting. It, it felt a little kind of like Once Upon a Time in the West sort of background where you have this thread of something going on. You finally find out what the connection is at the end. And I was torn as I thought about it. Is this working for the story? Because it it felt like the writers wanted to try to find a different way to get the seven to save this town. And by having Chisholm have a real chip on his shoulder because of something that Bogue had done to him in his past, really get, it became more of a personal vendetta story rather than doing something for uh, because it was right and because uh, these people really needed a, a hero to come in and save them. That was uh, kind of removed from the story. And it became really his own personal revenge story as much as uh, you know, we have our uh, a lady from the town, Emma Cullen, who comes to find these seven, say, you know, you know, you know what does she say? The line about uh, revenge will do or revenge will have to do or whatever that is. Thinking about it afterward, it kind of struck me funny that he's the one who says that to her, knowing that he's going into it for revenge himself. I am so glad you brought that up. That's that is the the point I wanted to make structurally, I am not torn on it like you are. I hated it. It really frustrated me, and it was a sign to me that the guys who wrote the damn thing didn't understand what the point was of the team. Like, the whole yeah. point of the team is to bring them together, these otherwise cagey guys who who would not work together, and they discover that the unity of the team and the value of supporting others is good for humanity. It doesn't actually have to be about vengeance. It, it can be about justice, and uh, that I think was the line. You want justice? Justice would be fine, uh, but I'll settle for revenge, something like that. Yeah. And and that was the intent that I walked out of the film. He went in it, for, he was in it for revenge, and he, that's a bit of the DNA that got shifted. That's not, that did not come from Seven Samurai. That did not come from Magnificent Seven. That was added for this film, and I thought it was cheap. I felt like if they were going to go down that road, he should have been one of the seven who ended up dying. Yep. 
then I felt like, okay, then I could see that how it would have ended up making sense. But it, it didn't work out that way. You know, it is what it is. It's it's an issue with the film, and I think it's certainly an issue that uh, both of us had with uh, Chisholm's character. Chris Pratt is Josh Faraday. Chris Pratt's Chris Pratt. He's fun. He, you know, Josh Faraday, he he makes it a very fun character. I mean, it, it feels very much like a Chris Pratt sort of character. The drunk Irishman, not surprised to see Chris Pratt playing it. Yeah. Yeah, one of the best lines in the thing is, you know, it's it's a two and a half day day ride to wherever we've got half a day. Let's do a half day of drinking. I thought that was great. Like, there, he has one of the the most wonderful and and contagious on screen laughs. Uh, when he laughs uh, at a joke, when he laughs at a party, it feels so genuine. Like that's how Chris Pratt laughs, and I want to hang out with that guy. He's uh, he's just completely is a, just a congenial guy that uh, feels like your best friend as you're watching him, or at least the guy who you want to be your best friend. <laughs> he's on the list. He is. It's uh, you know, it's it. He, Josh Faraday is an interesting character. Um, it's not exactly. It's speaking of the way that they wrote this. Um, Sam Chisholm, his character definitely felt a little bit more the stoic Yule Brynner sort of character. Josh Faraday kind of felt like a, a cross. He was a mishmash between several characters. He didn't quite feel like he was uh, anyone in particular. And the fact that that he uh, kind of comes on, I mean, he definitely has some of the crazy uh, Cacuccio sort of uh, mentality. But he wasn't and- the young and inexperienced guy either. Yeah, right. So it's I'm a little torn on on who he ended up being. And I also was I don't know, I guess I was not so sure about his uh, sacrifice at the end. It's like, okay, I guess you know, in a movie like this, it's fun to see somebody uh you know, have to make that decision. I'm going to make this uh, choice and I'm going to go sacrifice myself for the the good of the group. It seems more like, you know, an actor choice. I want to be the one who ends up having to sacrifice. And I, I, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't, I felt like that element was a little, I don't know. I wasn't completely sold on it. Well, he's the big star here, right? I, I mean, know, he's I the big star. And so he did have an awful lot of screen time in this movie. Yes, he's he he's only slightly smaller than Denzel on the poster. Only slightly. <laughs> Uh, but, but, you know, he was, he was fine and, and, uh, he was so much fun and, uh, to watch on screen, uh, that I, I kind of forgive it. The thing I missed though, and the thing I think I could have used out of him is it, when you look at the, the rest of the seven, no one is the young, inexperienced, you know, samurai, right? No, and, right. And so right. we, we lose the entire thread of the training, right? Of the the sort of conditioning, the cultural conditioning of what it means to to be a man, what it means to be a hero, what it means to be a samurai. We don't have any of that in this film. It was excised from the film, even in uh, Haley Bennett as Emma Cullen, who you know she ends up being on her mission of vengeance, uh, but she's a crack shot. She is somebody oh, who, yeah. who can absolutely take care of herself, and so we have she doesn't even get an opportunity to grow in this film and and to to show that they're. They're, they've made a, had a coming of age story with them, and, and I think that's another thing that's been that's missing from the DNA of the Seven Samurai. Along, along with the relationship uh, of the cowboy cowboy with the town person, right? That helps kind of you know bridge those two worlds, and you get that sense of of having to decide which way of life is the way that I am going to choose to live, which I I think is a valuable element to have. And I feel like it's interesting the way they went with, uh, with uh, Cullen, but at the same time, I did miss a relationship forming between two of the characters. 
Uh, let's see. Next we have on the list, Ethan Hawke is Goodnight Robichaux. Yeah, he definitely uh, is connected to Robert Vaughn's storyline from the original, the guy who's got a little bit of shell shock, a little bit of uh, PTSD, yeah. and uh, that was kind of an interesting element here. Although there is a little bit of a blending of uh, the character who is uh, who's Yul Brynner's best friend from the olden days. So again, they're kind of mixing a couple characters up as they create this character. Um, but boy, does he not just have the best name in the whole cast and probably the best character name that Ethan Hawke's ever had in his whole career. Quite possibly, yes. Good night, night, Robichaux. That was just great. He he also is a guy who clearly has thought very deeply about this character, and to think about him as a Civil War vet and and dealing with with PTSD. And he's a weird hero in this movie, right? Because he's a Civil War vet as a Confederate. Uh, And and so, you know, they don't make a whole lot about that, especially because his good friend is Denzel's uh, Sam Chisholm. Uh, And so, you know, you're left to wonder, that's an interesting relationship. I wonder what that's all about. But we kind of move on with that because that's not this movie. That's another movie. Um, But to hear him talk about how he prepared for this role, he he says, you know, I ended up watching Deer Hunter to the connection between Christopher Walken's Nick Chevaterevich. Is that right, Chevterevich? You bet. I yeah, don't know. that's the one. Nick Chevterevich in Deer Hunter. How he's just the the PTSD has broken him, and and we almost don't see him go far enough. I don't think. Um, uh, you know, it it leads it gives him enough impetus to to flee in the night. But he doesn't even do it in secret. Like, everybody watches him ride out of town, which I think is a little bit weak. But um, anyway, I, he, was, he was great, and he thought very clearly about this thing. And I love the comparisons to these other, other great characters that have come before that informed him. Uh, and it's just, he's, I just like Ethan Hawke. I think his voice, as he ages, he's, uh, he's 45 now. As he ages, his voice has gotten gravelly and sandy, and, and uh, he's kind of earned, earned that a little bit more. He's so good. I love seeing him on screen in pretty much anything. And just watching him again with Denzel kind of reunited from training day uh, along with Antoine Fuqua, I think just there's just a great chemistry there. And the fact that Ethan Hawke ended up being cast in this role, who is this old friend with Chisholm, I thought that was a really nice way to do it by having these two guys who had been in in a film together uh, 15 years ago now. Um, That's great. It's a great way to kind of bring that relationship relationship together where it really felt like those two guys really did have a relationship. I, I feel like we can't talk about Goodnight Robichaux without talking about Billy Rocks uh, as a pair because they do come together, played by Byung Hun Lee. Um, he is um, he's the knife guy. He has very few lines, but when he's on screen, he's awesome. He's he's a really uh, he's a fun character to watch. It's an interesting direction to take with him. Like I said earlier, the fact that uh, that Billy Rocks and Goodnight have created this basically scam to uh, to um, get money from these people as they bet against this guy who's going to use a knife in this uh, gunfight. Uh, it's a fantastic way to to play on that whole uh, character that James Coburn uh, did so well in Magnificent Seven, um, kind of that that stoic, silent uh, you know character that we had uh, going all the way back to Seven Samurai. Billy Rocks is really fun, and just seeing him as this uh, this knife thrower guy. There's just something really interesting about him, and it's just fun to see. It's nice to uh, integrate that into this story, and the fact that he's not just throwing a knife. He's got like you know he's got a 
whole you know set of cutlery attached to him. He's got knives all over, and he's <laughs> ready like to start. like spoons and forks. <laughs> throwing them all over the place. Uh, yeah. You know, there's another piece to his character, though, that I think is really interesting, and this goes specifically to Goodnight Robichaux. He, he, is, he provides sort of the therapeutic balance to Ethan Hawke's character, right? They go together not just because they have this scam, but because they have a very human connection around... Uh, Good Night's PTSD, and it is Billy Rock's character that keeps him uh, keeps him sane. And actually, their use of medicinal marijuana, I think, is fantastic. Right? They keep lighting up a joint to relax the stress, and 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 I thought that was a, a fascinating twist to these two characters, especially because Billy Rock's, although he doesn't play the traditional kind of uh, completely Asian sort of stereotype of the silent uh, the silent man. Um, I, I think they gave him uh, enough meat to make him a really interesting part of the film. He was the only uh, actor who has been in a genuine Western, and it was a Korean in 2008 called The Good, the Bad, and the Weird. He plays the bad. Uh, I have not seen it, but it is, you can bet it's made my list. It's been on my list forever. I just haven't gotten around to it, but it's been one that I've, it's been on my radar. He's got a lot of films that are ones that I've been meaning to watch. I just haven't quite gotten around to it. Uh, but like I saw the devil. Uh, I mean, he was in the two GI Joe films. He was in Terminator yep. Genesis. He's been in a lot of things. He's definitely, uh, you know, in Korea, he's very big. Um, I loved him in joint security area, which came out in 2000. That was just a, a really fantastic film and three extremes. Uh, he was in that and, uh, which was really kind of a disturbing film. Um, he's done some, some great stuff and I, I definitely want to keep watching him because he's a, he's a very, very interesting actor to see on screen. I found interesting also, he was the first Korean to actually present an Oscar, which I thought was very interesting. I had no mm. idea of that. And uh, he presented Best Foreign Language Film. So I guess you could say that's kind of fitting. Yes, it is fitting. He was in he was in a film that I think should be on both of our lists that might be hard to find. It's called Rush Hour 4, colon, Face Off 2. <laughs> I feel like I need to see that. They're like right away. <laughs> it's an actual theatrical sequel mashup. It, it was a it, yeah, and and it was on TV. But you know who else is in it? Sean Combs, aka Puff Daddy. I I that's not. I mean, who, how do you make this stuff up? I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> I feel like, hey, we got some money. Let's make a movie. You know what movies I loved. <laughs> Let's do let's them. Let's it. do them both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, no, I'm uh, a big fan. Oh, that's so funny. Interestingly, though, he was also the first Korean, along with An Sung Ki, uh, to put uh, their uh, hands and feet in the cement in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater. Oh, that's that's uh, very cool. It's very cool, cool, but it also it says a lot yeah. that it's like, wow, it took this long to get, <laughs> that's right. to get a Korean actor in there. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, all right. So, uh, backing up a little bit to Vincent D'Onofrio, oh. he's Jack Horn. Did you? I mean, it took me a long time to figure out that it was Vincent D'Onofrio in this movie when I first saw the trailer. I couldn't. I just couldn't place it. He just. He was. He's great everywhere. Uh, Vincent, you know, I'm a big fan. Big oh, fan. Yeah. Uh, but and but I was a little surprised to see that he'd taken on this role. And so he actually has a quote. He was asked that very question. And he says, you know, you play a character actor your entire life, your entire career, and suddenly someone says to you, you want to be in Magnificent Seven with these guys? And you say yes. So, (laughs) you know, cool. 
<laughs> oh, that's so funny. I thought it was also interesting. He said, I wanted to play a character that was capable of great violence, but also followed God. I've never played a character that followed God. <laughs> I know. Isn't that a great thing to point out? <laughs> it's like, wow, interesting. That so if you're looking for a Vincent D'Onofrio film that has kind of, it's it's faith-based, you're not going to find it here. <laughs> I so. he was great. I love that he uh, you know, he's this big guy and so he and he's a big trapper. And when we first meet him, I mean he he's killed somebody very quickly and <laughs> it's just kind of shocking the way that it happens. Uh which but it was great. And then he talks and he and he, it's like he's adopting the uh that the really high register kind of squeaky voice and there's something really interesting about that decision that I just loved. I really connected with it too. I mean, I thought it was just perfect. I I felt like he everything about it was hand to glove with Vincent D'Onofrio's performance. Everything about it. Yeah. Uh, how about Manuel Garcia Rolfo as uh, Vasquez? Absolutely underused. Am I right? Totally. I was totally in love with this character. It was such an interesting guy. Like I said, the fact that he is this. Uh, this killer, and that Chisholm hires him to join the team. I was like, God, that's just genius. I love that they did that. And then they didn't do anything. All they did was use him as a foil opposite uh, Goodnight Robichaux, as they uh, you know call each other names. That was it. I was like, seriously? You guys yeah. had a great opportunity here. <laughs> you squandered just it. Just squandered it. Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory right there. Oh, uh, he was he was it was really terrible you know and i think part of it he was the you know oh good we got a mexican and i thought that line that reveal was actually really nice and i think they had an even better opportunity to build more of that kind of the animosity between chris pratt and uh and manuel uh and and they just it was too brief uh too little i i could have used more movie in that regard um so that was a shame it, yeah, it really was, especially because the first Magnificent Seven was about these guys going down to Mexico to save these villagers. This was kind of an interesting opportunity to bring a Mexican in and do something a little different with it. I mean, I know we had a Mexican in the in the group the first time, uh, but I, I feel like they could have actually done something really unique with it here. Uh, they did something a little bit more with Red Harvest, played by Martin Sensmeyer. Um, the fact that he was a Native American that ends up kind of joining this team, I thought that was interesting, and I liked that they went there too. But again, I don't feel like they did much with it. It was kind of an interesting character. There was kind of some interesting uh, darkness to it like why is he kind of working solo what's going on with this guy but again underused absolutely agree and uh, i loved that he was in it i think he strikes such a fantastic uh, just profile you know i mean and when they used him they used him in a wonderfully visually uh, stunning way uh, to always put him up high and shoot him from down low and even whether he was on a horse riding bareback whether he was up on top of this of one of the buildings in the town they always just nailed him uh, and in it was just right, uh, but I, again, I, he felt like such an ancillary part of the team, uh, kind of token. Um, and, and again, we've already said it, it's a challenge making these movies when you have the big actors and you have a team of seven. How do you give everybody fair uh, shake? But I could have used a lot more of him, too. Especially because Vasquez, Red Harvest, and Chisholm are the three guys left alive. Yep. And it's like, I, I love that. But I also would have liked them to have developed those characters more, so I really was more connected to them. But, yep. you know, it is what it is. Yeah. 
I am excited that um, uh, Sense Meyer is actually going to be showing up in Westworld. So uh, another reason to check that out, as if I didn't have enough reasons. That's right. The list is long. Indeed. Uh, uh, Haley Bennett, we've already talked about as Emma Cullen. Yeah, she hasn't done a whole lot, although um, uh, she was in The Equalizer. So I'm guessing that's uh, how she kind of pulled herself into this. Uh, but boy, has she been busy lately. Uh, Hardcore Henry, A Kind of Murder, The Girl on the Train, which is coming out soon, along with Rules Don't Apply, Thank You for Your Service, and Weightless, uh, Terrence Malick's new film. She has just been so busy lately. She clearly is the uh, girl of the moment. I'm hoping to see uh, her develop some interesting stuff. I don't feel like there was a whole lot for her to do here. I felt like her character was interesting. I liked that they chose... Uh, the, again, just like the the cast of our seven, how they went uh, to uh, great lengths to find a really unique and diverse group here. I liked that they actually gave a female character a key role, and I, th- I thought that was great. Um, again, I mean, I don't feel like there was a whole lot to it. It's almost like she was a a uh, a, a mo- just a, a more modern version of a a stereotypical woman character in a film. It's like, well. We've got to make her, uh, you know, tough and she's going to be a shooter just like everybody else. She was as much a cardboard stereotype character of that type of a female uh, as, as you know, has so sadly been in so many other films. That's right. That, that's right. She was. She was. She was tough and she was also sexy and they lit her with a lantern from below. And so she was very striking in dark uh, light, but she still <laughs> did not get a sense that she she was going to be offered a part. In yeah. on the team, uh, she right. kind of she 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 took whatever she could, and that was not much from the script. So, too bad. I really it, would have liked that. What would have been really interesting, Pete, is if they had a decision made at the end of this story, much like at the end of the other ones, where is one of our heroes going to stay or go? What if she now that she had lost her husband? What if she had made a decision? I'm going to go with these cowboys. That would have that would have been transformative. That would have made it. That would have made it. And that, to that have, gets me excited thinking oh, about that. Now, yes, and to have the four of them remaining now with her walking on and all of them taking that beat, taking that moment over the wooden crosses and the graves and then riding off to get Andy. God, why don't they call us? <laughs> exactly. Uh, <sighs> oh, well. Jeez. Peter Sarsgaard, Bartholomew Bogue. Yeah, he's a baddie. He's a good baddie, that uh, Sarsgaard. Uh, at least, at least it wasn't uh, Green Lantern bad. But, um, but you know, I mean, he's still good. He he really knows how to play a bad character. You know, uh, this is what Fuqua says uh, of the character as as he was crafting it with Sarsgaard. He says, "I wanted someone who was smart, who reminded me of politicians today or Wall Street. Someone who just takes, and I couldn't wait to kill him off." I love that line. And, uh, you know, in the interview, as he was saying that, they, that got probably the biggest applause of the uh, of the night, which I think is an interesting thing. I mean, there were a couple of these lines that they throw into this movie that show Fuqua's kind of uh, political bent, you know, man who carries a gun is likely to use them. Uh, and, and as much as this movie is full of guns, they are they are uh, guns that are that, that demonstrate remorse and, and the violence, and you feel like the script sort of talks about that. But in this case, Peter Sarsgaard's character, there wasn't anything that I, I could find myself rooting even just a little bit for, uh, for his Bartholomew Bogue. I wanted him from the moment I saw him uh, and, and saw his business, I wanted him out. 
But uh, again, going back to the script, I, there were frustrations that I had with this. You know, this is a guy who really what he needs is, he, you know, he wants the land so that he can uh, continue to mine and, and take over the town and everything. He's already proven that he's happy at just k- killing everybody. I don't know. I, I guess my question was, why doesn't he just kill everybody at the beginning, wipe it out, take it all, and just claim it all for his own? You know, it's, I don't know. And I'm sure there's some Western politics or whatever was going on. But it's like, I liked that in the original, these guys are, are coming in to steal all the harvest and everything that these guys had been working so hard for so that they didn't have to because they were too lazy. The, the switch that they did with him, I felt like, you know, he's already a malicious and evil enough guy. I felt like he could have just easily wiped out the whole town and he wouldn't have cared. I mean, that's what he comes to do anyway. That's right. There was no sense of the symbiosis that is required of that relationship from you know from the original from from seven samurai and from you know from the bible right there is no sense that that the part of the malice comes from the fact that you're forcing people to do something that they do not want to do right uh, but they feel like they can't they, they have no other choices and so i think you're right that's the thing they made him too violent up front um you know too too dark yeah, right. I mean, he just—I mean, they just start killing everybody yeah. at the beginning. You—you like, you sort of want to feel like—I guess I'm—I'm I'm second guessing myself here. I mean, you sort of want to feel like the—the the character to make him a fully fleshed out bad guy. You want to feel like he has been pushed to limits that he did not want to go. I mean, let's go back to Hans Gruber. Um, like, here's a guy who who came in not to intentionally kill people. He came in to steal, and he only got violent when he f- when he was pushed to do so. Right? Um, that was that was the sort of concept. I think that's what makes him sort of an enduring character that you find yourself kind of rooting for. Um, and 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 I'm missing that in this film. He was just so bad the whole time that by the time he brought out the Gatling gun, I wasn't surprised at all. Even more specifically to this series, Calvera, he kills a guy in the opening sequence, but it's because that guy is coming to attack him. Yeah. Here, I mean, he just pulls out the gun and kills Matt Bomer. It's like, yeah, I'm just yeah. going to shoot you. Right, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, Matt Bomer. Wow, does he ever look like Henry Cavill? That's all <laughs> I could think about <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Those guys should play twins. That was amazing. <laughs> you know who he could be? Who? He could be uh oh what's the um Skinny the, Henry Cavill? The, no, the Superman <laughs> from the um the crazy Superman world. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the dumb the dumb Superman. What's it, what's, what's he called? Why uh, can't we think of him? Uh, it's, uh, the op- it's like that opposite yeah, world. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, too bad. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> comics fans. We're idiots. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're here to disappoint you again. Anybody else to talk about? I don't. That was everybody no, I cared about. Yeah, of the cast. Um, as far as getting it made, I mean, this again, it felt very much like, hey, you know, let's let's uh, pillage and let's rape and pillage our uh, historical films and find something we can remake to get more money because that's all we like to do these days is go back into the past and make uh, existing properties because it's uh, it's guaranteed mm-hmm. and that's exactly what MGM chairman Gary Barber did and he brought uh, the script by these guys to Fuqua and uh, and here it is. And I think the only uh, interesting connecting thread I found was that um, Walter Mirisch is uh, on again as executive producer. I'm guessing it was a contractual thing. I don't know if he actually had any involvement in the process. But um, my, from what I've read, it didn't seem complicated. It seemed like a pretty straightforward uh, movie to get made. 
cinematography by um, Moro Fiore. Uh, I, um, I I found I've already talked about how I think it was shot well. Um, he's behind Avatar. He was behind Training Day, and Equalizer is obviously going to be here. Uh, and uh, you know he's got some some excellent uh, credits to his name, and knows his way around a camera and lights well. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think he had done any westerns before, um, but he uh, he certainly has done um, stuff that has strong looks, and I do think he brings a nice sense of that um, of that look here. I, the shot that's stuck in my head from the film it's 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 a very long shot of Denzel as he's coming toward you on the camera from a long way off, very hazy, and it's just kind of this shadowy figure from a far away kind of approaching. I really enjoyed that that sort of imagery that Mauro captured here. Well, and you know what else he did well? I, I, the movement on horses, I think, is exceptional. And, and we get some fantastic tracking shots where we're, we're watching them come over the horizon or we're riding with them. And they, he captures not only the speed, just the, 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 the momentum of it, but the number of, of horses that are in play here really well. I mean, I felt like I was right a part of it. So I, I, I thought it was quite well shot. And uh, speaking of well shot, I mean, geez, this was, uh, I, I think we talked about this when we saw the trailer, the fact that this was, the majority of this was filmed in Louisiana yeah. uh, for tax incentive purposes, which I find so interesting because uh, they do such a good job of making it not look like Louisiana. My hunch is that they filmed all this in just kind of a lush green area and with all the trees, and then they they found some plates that they shot. Uh, I, I know that IMDb lists Arizona as a few uh, places um, mm-hmm. of the locations. My hunch is that they might have only come to shoot plates of things that they could digitally put in to kind of create this the, the backdrop for this town. And then I think all the exteriors of the real riding and the rough uh, deserty sort of stuff, that's the stuff they filmed in New Mexico. They they speak specifically to that, um, and and to your point, uh, the cast when when watching some of the there there's some great interviews that they they did for this where they actually got all seven of them and Fuqua on a stage together, and you know how rarely that happens. You know these are guys who really feel strongly about pressing this film uh, to be able to work their schedules out uh, as as famous as they are to be there together, and they speak specifically of their experiences in Louisiana for a long time and in. New Mexico for a long time. No one once mentioned being in Arizona. Uh, they do say it's very light on the CG in terms of interaction with actors, but they did drop mountains in. Yep. Uh, and so that, that to your point, uh, is great. But uh, Ethan Hunt, uh, Ethan Hunt, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Ethan that's Hawk, a different uh, mission. Yeah, he, he's, he was telling some stories about some things people told him when they were getting ready to shoot in Louisiana. And one of them says, he says, this guy called and told me, he said, the mosquitoes down there are so large, they can stand flat-footed and make love to a turkey. <laughs> I've never, never heard it put quite that way before, but I like it, and I'm going to use it. It makes me not want to go to Louisiana. Though. Yeah, right. Should we talk? Can we can we talk about stunts? Because this blew me away. Definitely, yeah. Okay, specifically on this point around CGI, I expected there to have been quite a lot of CGI on this film. Now, I have not heard anything from the SPCA. I have not heard anything about uh, about what they did with horses, but there is a shot that's actually used in the trailer where an explosion goes off and a horse is lifted up off the ground and falls over a railing, like out of a pen and onto his back. And uh, I thought that was a sure sign for me that that was all CG. Like they had done that and they threw a horse and that was 
That was just not a real thing. And in this interview with Fuqua and Denzel, they say specifically that shot was stunning. It was absolutely real. There was no CG work done on horses, no CG work done on like their gun twisting and no, uh, none of that. All of that was absolutely real. They had over 800 horse falls or throws, more than any other film in history. Uh, and and all of it was done with real horses. And in the case of the horse that landed on its back, <laughs> said it, 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 it was not happy but it was not injured. In fact, it got right back up on its feet and took off running and had to be wrangled. <laughs> and it was, it was an escaped horse and had to be wrangled, uh, uh, you know, much later. But it was um, that that surprised me, especially because we've had so much conversation on this uh, in the Westerns that we've done around violence against horses and around the trip trick that they, you know, the, where the horses get tripped oh, and fall down yeah. on their faces, that they were tracking 800 horse falls in this film felt like something somebody should be upset about. I remember uh, thinking that when there was a, they, they do the kind of a, a rope trick where they put a, pull a rope up in front of a horse galloping toward them and it trips the horse. And I remember seeing that in the film going, wow, they actually did that. I mean, I could kind of see the technical side behind it and it, cause it, it almost didn't quite look like it really would have worked. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, they're actually really doing some stuff here to yeah. these animals. So yeah. it's interesting, very interesting. It's nice to see that they're uh, you know, working at finding ways to do some of this in ways that hopefully the ASPCA isn't going to be knocking down the door. Yeah, right, right. We have to talk about the music, uh, if, if only because it was, you know, melancholy. The story yeah. behind the music is melancholy. Yeah, not this the music is one of itself. your favorites, the score, the, the, the scorer. You know, the oh. scorer. James he's one of Horner. your famous J's. He is. He's one of the 10 J's. Good old James Horner, his final score, unfinished. Um, this was, I, I think, the last of his scores to now be released uh, posthumously. Um, very sad. Um, a lot of this ended up getting written by his friend Simon Franklin, who he'd been working with quite a bit on uh, a lot of the uh, songs and stuff that they had done for some of his scores and and other elements. He's, he's quite a... Uh, um, uh, a, a strong partner in the music business for not just Horner, but a lot of different people. Um, I liked the score. I thought it was fine. It felt um, Horner-esque. There were some great touches that he did to bring homages in to uh, the fantastic score by Bernstein, uh, particularly that it's that uh, Native American kind of flute that I, I don't even know what the instrument is called, but it's got that great sound um, that would kind of punch the... Dun- but it did it in a way where you didn't have any tune. It was just the it just it was that that instrument. It was just the hits, and so it became this kind of percussive beat that would kind of go through there sometimes, and along with some of the other elements that they they pulled. Um, the unfortunate thing is that they opted to use Elmer Bernstein's piece at the end making you completely aware how as as nice as it was hearing some of Horner's music here in his final score along with what Franklin brought to it that it still didn't stack up to Bernstein that that stood out in Technicolor so to speak it was it was a stark contrast the thing i i appreciate about his role in this is the fact that he he was given the script he never saw any footage of the film he wrote seven tracks uh for the film from the script and all seven were used in the film called The Magnificent Seven. 
And I think that's just sort of a touching thing, and it's something that that is not lost on the cast. It those the tracks were played and uh, regularly on set because they had them and they were used to inspire, um, you know, scenes in which they were later used in the final film. So I, I thought that was just kind of a touching story, and it was you know he, he died in a plane crash, right? That, yeah, he's piloting, he was piloting it, piloting yeah. it, and it's really sad, and and he is clearly missed. But but it was um, it was a fine score. Um, if if not a little bit clumsy. I can only imagine it would have been stronger had he been around to finish, finish it, it, to connect yep. it to the film, all of that. I think he could have done some great stuff with it. I mean, he's a great composer. And I, I can get a sense of his touches through there. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it is tragic. But uh, uh, the real tragedy is that they opted to put Bernstein's music in at all. Oh, truly. Just so, so dumb of them. How uh, uh, how's it doing so far? Uh, you know, it's doing well. I mean, it uh, it knocked Sully off the uh, the box office uh, um, uh, king pile. What do you call all <laughs> that? What do you call that? King of the mountain. The king pile of, mountain. of kings. <laughs> Sully had been the king of the mountain for several weeks, and finally, the Magnificent Seven knocked him off. Uh, this movie uh, did just open. What I uh, found was that the production budget was ninety million to get this thing made. So, uh, you know, it was a pretty hefty a budget healthy, for this. expensive film, yeah. Yeah, I didn't find anything on the Princeton advertising. Although, interestingly, I did find some information, and I, I can't quite tell. Uh, it's, it's written so uh, elusively, I can't quite tell. But it looked like in this document for um, Louisiana, which was uh, where they filmed it, or the vast majority of it, um, they have to file like how much did the film cost and all this. They had it listed as costing $107,632,628. That was the gross estimate for the budget. And then the net budget they list is $90 million. And so my hunch is that after the money that they've saved from the LA ta- uh, Louisiana tax incentives, that that ended up kind of bringing that down to about that $90 million level. Um, that's kind of my read on what those two numbers mean. So I think so it actually cost the people of Louisiana contributed seventeen million dollars to make this film. That's right. Really, what we're saying. That's how so, tax incentives work. Thank you, Louisiana. <laughs> we appreciate your we appreciate yes, your uh, participation. So so far, the film has made uh, domestically just over opening weekend about thirty five million, and internationally it's at about twenty, almost twenty one and a half million. So it's it's doing pretty well. I mean, for a ninety ish million dollar film, not counting prints and advertising, to have in its opening week to have earned about fifty six and a half million, it seems like it's going to do pretty well for itself. Likely is going to make its money back. I'll keep uh, as the film continues. I'll keep tracking it on our chart and uh, see where it lands all righty let's rank it let's do it head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and we're gonna do it it's pretty rare that we actually rank a new film on this particular scorecard but we're gonna try it tonight filmo a filmo magnificent 7 2016 against first up oh brother where art thou uh it's gonna be oh brother where art thou definitely is yep uh magnificent 7 2016 or the host Ooh. It's already troublesome for me. I am going to say the host. Really? I yes, considering my issues with that film. Yeah. I'm still I I had more issues with this Magnificent 7. Okay. Me too. That's good. I was going to pick the host, but I thought you were going to make it more difficult for me. <laughs> well, let's see where this one goes. The Magnificent 7 or Gone with the Wind. Magnificent 7, hands down. Ugh, Gone with the Wind, vomit. 
I will say Gone with the Wind. <laughs> okay, here we I'll go. Take, I'll take that vomit. <laughs> yeah, you'll take it. Here you go. One, oh, man. One two, two, three, three scissors. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. All right. Magnificent Seven or Detour. I am definitely Detour. I am also Detour. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> this one's super easy for me. The Magnificent Seven or Volunteers. All right. I'm totally 100% Volunteers. Oh, yuck. You gotta be kidding me. It's so good. You know, I can't. Yeah. I can't. Big kitty cat. I can't. Yes, you are. There's no Who way I can do that. Cat? No, no, no. I'm interrupting you because no, no, you and your quoting. Ready? Oh, so good. Yep. One, One two, two, three, three rock. rock. <laughs> One, One, two, two three, three, rocks. Crush it. Oh, Dang. fire. All right, all right. Magnificent Seven or Ninotchka? <laughs> go ahead, Andy. I, I, gonna... I dare you. You do? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to say Magnificent Seven. Okay, good. I thought you were going to say Ninotchka. No, no, no. What are you going to say? Magnificent <laughs> Seven. Okay. Uh, Magnificent Seven or The Untouchables. I'll say The Untouchables. I will say The Untouchables, too. Okay, next up, The Magnificent Seven or Metropolis? Uh, Magnificent Seven. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Metropolis. It's it's hard for me to, to go back and... I mean, as much as I appreciate it and think it's a great film, I would not put it on first. I'll still say Metropolis. <laughs> Jeez. All right, here we go. Magnificent Seven had I had so many issues with it, and it, the more I think about it, the more angry I get. I think it's because you're losing so badly tonight. Plus, plus Haley did not write off with them, and that would have made it better. Well, now you're retconning a film that we didn't make. I know, but too bad. Metropolis is. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, ready? here we go. One, One two, two, three. three paper. paper. One, One, two, two three. three. Paper. <laughs> One, two, three, rock. rock. <laughs> One, two, three, paper. Jeez, are you kidding? All right. One, One two, two, three, paper. Scissors. All right, all right. Principal. Well, there it is. Two hundred nine. Uh, yeah, 219 out of 265. I kind of thought it would be uh, it would break uh, two hundred. Oh, well. I was uh, yeah. I, I for me this would be much lower. Yeah. No. I yeah. And I'll tell you. I okay. So two points. One on this film specifically, it has so many elements that I had fun watching. It breaks my heart in a number of areas, but not enough that the that the individual pieces, though they did not add up to something greater than their sum were entertaining enough for me for the film. I enjoy watching these dudes ride around on horses and shoot stuff and blow stuff up. I loved the element of the of the mine and the explosions. It was it was visually interesting to me. It kept it it kept me interested. I don't know how many times I'm going to go back and think about this film all that much. It was it ended up being sort of you know, at the end of it ended up sort of spiking itself and and I I'm hurt by that. Uh but 
overall, it was fine. It was a fine film. And so for my Letterboxd, I'm, I'm going to tell you it's probably a two and a half. Wow. Considering uh, the fights we had, I thought you'd have been much higher. I'm at a two, and I feel like uh, that's including my half star. (laughs) (laughs) Your half star of joy. Half star of politeness. All right. Well, you know, I could certainly take that. But the the real disappointment, I'm trying to separate from, from my rankings. And the real disappointment is that it does not, for me, live up to what we have seen in the rest of these Seven Samurai family films. And and that bugs me. But I feel like I have to watch it standing kind of outside of that uh, for at least this first viewing and rank it accordingly because it, it was a meh film. If I watched it comparing it to The Seven Samurai, it would be a half-star film and I would hate it and I, w- I would just go back to bed. Um, but, but it was fine. It was an entertaining Western and I got through it and I don't know if I'm going to see it again, but it was fine. No, and that's the thing. It's like it's very easy to watch. If if I happen to see it streaming or something, I might put it on because it's going to be an easy watch. But I, again, a lot of times those easy watches are very forgettable, and that's yep. uh, you know that's the unfortunate thing. And this one fell into that camp. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to know how our uh, series ended up ranking overall? I do. Please. What is the number one of the five that we talked about? Would you guess? <laughs> um. I I would hope it would be Seven Samurai. And you would be right. Okay. We are at least smart in that regard. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> uh, second up, thoughts? Uh, was it The Magnificent Seven? No, it's Three Amigos. Okay, I'm a, I would guess then it would be Three Amigos, A Bug's Life, Magnificent Seven, Magnificent Seven. Correct. And that would be the 1960. And then last is the 19, yeah, 19, or 2016, or 2016 yeah. That is exactly our order. I really enjoyed this series. This may be uh, one of my favorite series that we've done. And I think it's just so much fun kind of tracking this DNA over time as it shifts and morphs and changes uh, and just seeing how different people take this story. And, you know, I mean, to that end, maybe that's why I did at least give this film two stars, because it still is a really fun uh, way to tell this story. I think so too, and I think it was. I, I'm with you. This this series in general has been a real treat, and I, I think too, it, it's making me think about other films differently. The the way we look at the components, the component elements of of the Seven Samurai, and how it has influenced storytelling on film more than just the tropes of building a team and fighting a villain and and freeing a city. Uh, it, it, it how these stories are structured on film, I think, is it has been made more fascinating even as a result of these five films so well done Andy yeah it's fun times yeah fun times what are we doing next well we've got a little uh, series a little three movie series that uh, we uh, are calling this is real life Jack (laughs) oh we're so clever (laughs) oh yes we are yes indeed Uh, yeah it's uh, it's true stories and it'll be uh, an interesting uh, series to watch. There's nothing connecting the three films themselves. They are completely separate in their own worlds, but they are all based on true stories. First up, we have The Dish, which is going to be a, a fun little Australian film to look at. And then we've got Black Hawk Down about Mogadishu and ending with Sea Biscuit and some fine horse racing. Everybody gots to love Sea Biscuit. Now, if I could have Sam Neill riding Sea Biscuit, <laughs> that would be the movie I would watch. <laughs> as long as there's not a helicopter chasing. Yeah, right. No, in, in Mogadishu, riding across right. Mogadishu. <laughs> that would be a movie. Well, this was awesome, Andy, and I'm, it's, it's exhausted me. I, I got to go to bed. 
Well, while you do that, I'm going to head off to find five more Magnificents like us so that we can find a village to save. Amazon, I'm sure, will eventually giveth. <laughs> eventually, it will, <laughs> but as for, it always doeth. <laughs> willeth, it willeth, giveth. Uh, but tonight, uh, IMDb is going to be giving it uh, to us. <laughs> IMDb gives it to us uh, because the reviews are not up on Amazon yet. And so, there we go. Uh, thanks to IMDb, um, I got. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna kick it off with it. Uh, uh, Clomus ninety eight from Canada. Writes in uh, saying nothing like the original, so don't expect that. Denzel and Pratt were weak at best. Vincent D'Onofrio was the only actor who put skills into his portrayal. The story is predictable in every scene. Just another bad acting Hollywood train wreck. It really is pointless. If they had spent more time developing the seven and showed some feeling, they could have made a six out of ten movie. It is so predictable that you can guess which window people are going to get thrown out of before it happens. Haley Bennett was weak, crying, and timid wife at the beginning. By the end of the movie, she was killing people all over the place. They spent $90 million on this crap? I usually enjoy Denzel, but he won't win any hardware at the Oscars. The role was there, just not the acting. As the credits roll, they play the original theme song, I guess, to try to make you happy about the crap you just witnessed. Didn't work. Do you think do you think Denzel went into this saying, I think this is gonna be where I get some more Oscar hardware? <laughs> I'm not sure that was I'm not sure that was the line. <laughs> well, got? Richie says the shameful seven. You have got to be kidding me. A new low is upon us in not only movie making, but for the Western genre. I strongly recommend that Mr. Fuqua, the director, take this film off his resume. It takes away from all his good work. Denzel, what in the world were you thinking? As well as Ethan Hawke and all the rest of the cast. First of all, just go see the, the original, and anyone who does will immediately come to their senses with little or no effort and understand without explanation how good a Western can be. You will probably watch it twice, as I have seen it maybe 30 times. That is where the word magnificent belongs, and not in this remake in any way. Mass random shootings and killings with, with might makes right is not suspense or good storytelling. This movie came across as hollow and plastic for script acting and plot. This is movie is like a video game of some sort where you get to pick a character and then kill as many people as you can. Mindless in presentation, severe lack of character development, egotistical parading of look at me, I'm in a western, and riding a horse and shooting guns and more of a display of embarrassment than I had for all the people in this movie. Here's an interesting thought. Why didn't all these folks just get together and make a movie, any movie, calling this a remake? I am surprised the critics are not all over this and telling the truth about how bad it is. Methinks the fix is in. All I can say is that if anyone likes this type of Western portrayed here in this way and style, the Western as we know it is doomed at least for this generation. Shame on anyone in this movie for charging money to go see this. A refund is in order for all, plus an apology. Enough said. I love that he comes around with three stars. He still gives a three, three out of ten, three out of ten. It's still three, three stars. Like that was definitely a like a half star review. That's what you yes. just read there. That right. was, and I, I can't say I disagree with Richie at all. I can't. I mean, there, there are some, there are things that he points out that are true. I just don't feel them as vehemently as he clearly does. But that was a one star review you just read. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, thanks, IMTB. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.